Coming up next, we talk to WNBA writer Jen Hatfield from Her Hoop Stats, The Next Hoops 538. And we also talk to TBT founder and CEO John Mugar. We also give our official preview of the NBA bubble playoffs, break down the bubble awards, and the recent coaching changes with New Orleans and the Chicago Bulls. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Triple Double Podcast. I am Justin Goodrum, joined by Matt Thomas. What's up, man? What's up, man? I'd love to say it's a lazy Sunday, but I've been getting stuff done. And from what I hear, you've been doing stuff too. How are you? I am good. I'll fully admit I'm a little bit exhausted. It's been a pretty busy <laughs> weekend. But, I mean, the playoffs start tomorrow. So I have a little bit more of an adrenaline boost to get through this uh, playoff preview. So um, I'm more than happy to talk about it. Nice. Yeah, we have the playoffs starting tomorrow, probably when once you all download this and start listening we will have playoffs later that day um so always a very exciting time of year i mean just two months ago we had doubts from everyone ranging from kyrie irving to others as to whether we would be here so i'm so happy to see that that we've made it to this point we are going to have an nba playoffs. still i saw this week zero coronavirus cases in the nba bubble so we are looking good to get the playoffs started man i couldn't be more excited yeah, me too. Um, and our quick headlines, um, and we won't, won't spend too much time on it. I wanted to your point. I kind of want to get your thoughts on like now the NBA starting to invite outside people into the bubble, um, loved ones um, of the players. Uh, I think they're allowed one person um, to come into the bubble with them. So I think that's going to be very fascinating. So um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to do our playoff preview. Um, we'll run through some headlines. And we have two awesome guests at the end of the show. First, um, he is the founder and CEO of the basketball tournament, John Mugar. And then we have writer uh, for Her Hoop Stats, the 538, and um, the next hoops, Jen Hatfield. So uh, with John, we break down what he went through organizing the basketball tournament. So that was really the first sports period that we saw um, since the pandemic started on ESPN consistently. So he'll go through the really the history of the tournament, the challenges he had to go through and more. So that's a very interesting challenge chat and then we talked to jen hatfield um she is a writer who covers the washington mystics also the rest of the WNBA. um she really provided some great insight to how the league is handling the pandemic so i'm lost to um really talk with them and really really very informational interviews with both of them so before we get into our main topics man as always we have some housekeeping things to um, go through uh, you can get in touch with the show through facebook and twitter also, leave us a review on iTunes and email us at triple double podcast at gmail.com. If you have any kind of a positive question, negative question, whatever you want, we will break it down for you. Um, so, man, let's hop into it and let's break into the headlines uh, before we get into our playoff preview. A couple of new coaching um, changes, and that was with uh, New Orleans uh, firing Alvin Gentry and then the Bulls to my delight, I'll fully a minute uh firing jim boylan so man of these two jobs i'll I'll just play a little rapid fire with you which of one of these two jobs seem the most appealing well i think you definitely at this point have to say new orleans just with zion and being able to work with a, a young superstar i mean you get on his good side you could have like a, a mike brown in cleveland from lebron's early years Uh, That type of situation where, hey, if you're getting in the playoffs and you're on this player's good side, you're, you know, job security for, 
you know, maybe four or five years, which is pretty good for an NBA head coach and, and maybe even beyond that if things go well. So I do think that's a little more appealing. The argument for the Bulls side, I think, would be that you're in the Eastern Conference. And at one point, at least early in the season, Bulls were definitely in the talk and in competition for a playoff spot before things kind of unraveled. So I think uh, I would pick New Orleans, but is there a case you'd make for Chicago? The case I would make for Chicago is two things. One is the pressure of Zion Williamson, right? I mean, we have to wonder who is the uh, the Wizard of Oz pulling the strings in terms of his minutes? Was Mm. it really Alvin Gentry or was it the front office um, really pushing him with a minutes restriction? So if you're a coach and you want to play Zion, you know, the maximum amount of minutes, is it's not going to be an issue. And that is going to be a potential roadblock, I think, and also the pressure too. So you're you're playing with kind of two handicaps there. One, Zion's minutes, and two, the expectations of that team that's built around him. So that's, that's going to be tough. Um, with the Bulls, you have a new um, front office person, and I'm going to screw up his name, but I think it's Arturis Karnisivis. Um, he was the former mm-hmm. Denver Nuggets general manager, and now he's the executive vice president of basketball operations. And just listening to the um, the No Dunks podcast, I mean, they had a good point. This is his first big move, and the owners basically allowed him to pull this move off of the Chicago Bulls. I mean, this is a big move, and we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of coaching candidates um, in the running. Um, there is even a, a suggestion by Lindsey Dargantulo, um, Becky, uh, Becky Hammond, the uh, – San Antonio's mm-hmm. assistant coach, which to me, like I'm digging the suggestion kind of, but I think um, with Becky Hammond, she deserves better. <laughs> I'm just being honest. <laughs> um, I just think that's kind of like a very combustible situation to mm. enter to. And not the only, not to mention the pressure of her being the first women's head coach. I just think there might be other jobs that might come available, but we'll see. It could work in the other direction where you're just always that hype of her getting that coaching job. And then, all of a sudden, because the Bulls don't have really that prominent of an all-star, there's Zach Levine, but you know, there's a question of if he's really a true superstar or not. She could grow there, become a head coach, but at the same time, there's you know a combustible front office component, where she's the head coach of the Pelicans. That's an issue immediately. She's hopping in with Zion. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for a head, first head coach of any team. So... Um, that's a very interesting situation. Did, did you have any thoughts of Becky Hammond perhaps being a candidate? I haven't heard her name other than from Lindsay Dargantulo on Twitter. Is she a, you know, a possible contender for one of these two jobs? You know, I, I have no insight into that. Or even if she is kind of waiting in the wings to be the heir apparent for the Spurs whenever Pop decides to hang it up. I mean, you might also think, you know, you mentioned her being – Um, kind of this groundbreaker in in being potentially the first female head coach in the NBA. Um, It it may be a situation where she feels more comfortable doing that as the heir apparent for the Spurs, but seeing interviews with Becky Hammond and and hearing from her, I don't think honestly, if, if she gets that offer and she's a smart basketball person, she's a smart basketball mind If she likes the situation that she sees in either of these cities, I don't think she'll be afraid to take that job. And I don't think she's going to be afraid of that pressure. I mean, to get to the point that she's already at, I think she's demonstrated a a lot of determination anyway. 
So I don't think something like that will dissuade her, especially like new front office, like you said, in Chicago, if, if she has a good amount of control or input over the situation and, and how she wants to implement her coaching philosophy um, or, or for any coaching candidate for that matter. I mean, you, you kind of have to like a brand new slate and already that executive has been given freedom by the ownership. That's, that's a nice situation. I wanted to ask you though, for the bulls, since we all know people listening to the podcast, know you're a bulls fan. Who, who would you like to see, uh, you know, maybe, maybe aside from Becky Hammond, is there like a dream candidate that you have right now? I mean, I've, you know, you can't get Tibbs back. He went to New York. But is there someone else? I know. Yeah. It's a tough situation. I, I think overall, and I've heard some names bantered around, nothing's really lighting my world on fire. I just want a coach with kind of a clean slate. Either I think somebody get an opportunity that I'm excited about or um, somebody with a proven track record. Like did, my dream my dream candidate would be Mark Jackson. That would be my mm. first choice. I did hear his um, name floated around. But I don't know if he would want that job or not. But yeah. I just, with the last two coaches, they had a lot of baggage. And with their hires, they were puzzling. So you didn't need a fortune teller to, to really predict that they were going to be not suitable candidates. And I think one of the, the good, I think the pros of the Bulls job is that the front office sticks with their coaches. I mean, it doesn't kind of look like it with Jim Boylan only being there for two seasons, but he was atrocious. I mean, the players hated him. I mean, mm. I, we talked about it. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of a players having like kind of a mutiny against their coach. I never heard of that before. <laughs> That's what happened. So I think at least the front office is willing to give a chance to any type of a coach. I just hope their next hire, um, no matter who they pick, they have like a fresh like, scent to them, <laughs> no pun intended, that they don't have this error of just, I don't know, dread and just fear and that there's some optimism with their hire. Are are you in agreement with me that both of these firings were just based on the performance of these teams? I think so. The Bulls won for sure. You you know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The Pelicans, I think it's more of a scapegoat situation. And I just think their performance in the bubble was atrocious. Um, yeah. Even... You know, you heard, I heard Bill Simmons just really go after Alonzo Ball, um, the way he performed, because he was really playing well before the pandemic hit, and he was just really bad um, once, you know, the bubble play started happening. So I think he was kind of the scapegoat. I mean, you can't – I mean, look at the players, right? We've seen even with Zion's weight in particular, and I think I've heard, you know, Charles Barkley and Kendrick Perkins – and Bill Simmons and some other analysts really discussed this. I mean, we, and I agree with this, we can't rely on Twitter for pictures of guys with their weight, right? Um, I don't know if you <laughs> saw that picture of Zion, like, in the gym. He looks super jacked, and he's sweating, and he's all glistening or whatever. Like, yeah, you looked, you know, honestly somewhat out of shape in the bubble. And that's what to kind of be expected. I mean, this is a weird situation. I just think, <clears throat> and he still look like even James Harden, right? People are freaking out, you know, in terms of, his weight and everything. He looks like the same guy to me. I don't see a difference. He's still awesome, but I don't see him being super skinnier. I mean, really the only thing, the only player that looked any different was the Joker. And now it's yep. actual video footage of him walking around. It was a clear difference. He lost a lot of weight. So 
overall with the Pelicans, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I think the key of this team is Zion, and I think it's going to be his weight. And you see players like Charles Barkley, Shaq, Kendrick Perkins. I mean, I'm going off more what they say besides, you know, Bill Simmons, who granted he has a lot of basketball knowledge, but he never played. It's different being a player. And the player's perspective is that these you can't play at that weight. And especially mm. the way Zion plays, and it goes to the head coaching situation, he kind of go where Zion goes. If Zion is a success and if they're winning, that head coach is going to get a lot of the credit. If they suck and Zion gets hurt, then the coach is going to be screwed. He's going to be fired. So at this point, it's it's really going to be difficult unless you have a veteran head coach like a Rick Carlisle or seen um, with some other coaching candidates that were able to make it happen. Um, who's the coach for Oklahoma City? Um, he's on the tip of my uh, tongue. He was Billy Donovan. There you or go. Scott Brooks. Yes. Okay. There you, uh, Billy Donovan. Yeah, I think Brooks is that with Washington. With the, correct. With the Wizards. Um, I, I just think. You need that type of coach. That's the only way this is going to work is a coach who's a veteran that they're operating on the assumption that Zion's going to be hurt and that they're going to build a team without Zion. And mm. I think we've seen that, you know, good coaches, for instance, um, in Toronto or with Brooklyn now. Brooklyn's played really good in the bubble. Like they gave, you know, the Portland Trailblazers a run for their money um, with mm-hmm. that spectacular performance. Um, that Damian Lillard had. So overall, I think the candidate for that New Orleans job is going to be a lot more difficult, and I don't think it's suitable for a first, you know, coaching job. As with the Bulls, I feel like you can make mistakes despite their dysfunction. Um, they're going to give you a shot. Yeah, definitely higher expectations on the New Orleans side. If I'm a coach and I, I'm you know, a candidate, uh, a final candidate for the New Orleans job. I mean, I want to be on some Zoom meetings with Zion. From what I've seen, it it seems like he has a pretty good head on his shoulders. seems like a team player. All that stuff that you want to see seems determined to be great. So, you know, it's, it's tough to say with the limited minutes that we saw in the bubble, we're disappointed. And overall, the limited minutes this season, but if he's committed to dropping some weight and stuff, I'm all in on that job. I think it's a great opportunity. If you're in that Zoom interview and you see any type of red flags or anything like that that indicate, you know, he's good with where he is right now or whatever, which I, I don't imagine would be the case. But, yeah, I, I'm totally out on that job because the expectations are going to be a lot higher than on the Bulls, like you pointed out. And it's going to be short-lived if he's not going to be able to play for 30-plus minutes a game. So I I think you're right. He kind of makes or breaks that entire coaching position. But it is an interesting opportunity. But without Zion, you're really looking at a rebuilding project again. Yeah, I agree. Um, before we move on, I keep, we keep teasing that, but there's some other things I want to get your opinion on that. Um, first real quickly, Damian Lillard winning the, um, bubble MVP. I love the trophy. It's like a Mickey Mouse. I don't know if you saw it. Um, but it's basically like, I think it looks like it's in gold or bronze or something like a really cool trophy Mm. of Mickey Mouse and him being the bubble MVP. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it makes sense with, um, you know, him putting up 61 in one of the bubble games and also the implication that, you know, this was make or break for the Blazers. If if they lose any of those games down the stretch, even if they lost 
against the Grizzlies yesterday. They would then have to play the Grizzlies again to determine who gets into uh, the playoffs. So I think with the stakes being so high, um, but that's also not to diminish what he did. I mean, he, he was incredible in the bubble. I, I think there's an argument for Devin Booker as well with what the Suns were able to do. But I think the thing that separates it is the stakes and the narrative. I mean, the, the Suns had, they been able to make it into that seating game, the, the eight versus nine playing game. Maybe you see that award go to Devin Booker, but with how Damian Lillard played and how, how clutch he was in, in more of those games, I would say than Devin Booker on the Suns overall, uh, it, it makes total sense to me that that he won that award. I know I think Doncic was a finalist sure. um, in that award as well. Makes a lot of sense. He uh, had that incredible game against Milwaukee al- along with others. I mean, as we know, he just fills up the stat box. TJ Warren was kind of fun, but there and James Harden always puts up numbers. But those guys, there weren't really as high of stakes. So I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is you brought this interesting narrative, the most interesting narrative that we saw for for these first couple weeks in the bubble. Because let's be honest, the Lakers were disappointing. The Clippers were disappointing. Other teams that kind of already had their seating were just kind of coasting and getting ready for the playoffs, which makes sense because that's what happens every year towards the end of the regular season. So these guys were playing for their playoff lives and I mean, Portland is reinvigorated and it's it's one of the most fun teams, arguably second to the Suns. But as I said, they didn't make it, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I am in agreement with you. I'll save my thoughts about Damian Lillard when we kind of break down um, his chances against the L.A. Lakers. But um, I'm in agreement with what you said. Um, just to read off some stuff real quick. Um, the first team of um, all bubble team, uh, Monty Williams, the coach of the Suns. Um, earned unanimous choice for the league's top um, coach in the bubble. Um, Portland's Terry Scotts got one um, first place vote. Um, first team goes Lillard, uh, Devin Booker, Luka Doncic, um, James Harden, and TJ Warren, as you mentioned, Matt. And then second team is Giannis, Kumbo, Kawhi Leonard, Kristoff um, Porzingis, um, Karis LeVert, and then Michael Porter Jr. And I thought LeVert was spectacular. I've never seen him play before. I'll mm. fully admit he was awesome. Um, I was really impressed with him. He was going um, toe-to-toe uh, with um, um, Damian Lillard as well. And I think a light mention to John Morant. Um, I was really impressed with him too. I know yeah. he probably didn't have the most spectacular stats, but I think he's going to be a superstar. Um, I'm really, really excited about his game. Um, I think he might end up like Devin Booker in terms of – because of where he plays at, no one's going to talk about him. But I think he's going to be a huge player to really keep your eyes on the, in future seasons. I have, I kind of almost disagree because he right. is a highlight machine. Whereas like Devin Booker is hitting jump shots and, and he's impressive. But it's, it's mostly he's a lights out shooter that sure. can create here and there. Whereas John Morant, I mean, he just looks like a different guard than everyone else with the way he can he can move side to side and his agility i I think he's at least going to be on a lot of top 10 highlight reels i hope so nothing else so he'll get 
he'll get some, he'll get a nod that way. And uh, yeah, I totally agree with you though. I mean, he had that career high 35 in the game where they ultimately uh, lost to Portland in that seeding game on Saturday. But um, I mean, bright, bright future ahead of John Moran, very, very electrifying player to watch. Um, but, but yeah, I agree. Did you um, have any thoughts on those, those two bubble teams? I mean, does that seem about right from the performances we saw? Oh, in terms of this, the um, all bubble teams? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I don't have too much of an issue with it. I like them giving awards for the bubble. I think that's really cool. Um, I was really impressed with Luca. Um, and I think overall, all the players, I think they're really taking it serious. Just seeing, you know, who's who comprised this team, it makes sense. Um, so I was really excited to see that. And also really excited because typically the 8-9, who's going to make the, the, those final spots is not really that exciting. Like, who cares? But I got into yeah. it. I was really compelled. Like, I think that's an idea they should keep for good, having that totally play agree. Game. I think that would be awesome. Like, I think that's something they should always keep because I was on the edge of my seat. Like, I wanted to... <laughs> I really wanted to see who was going to win. The Suns made a run. Like, it just made something to play for. So I think I'm wondering, yeah. the only thing in my mind is, if this was just the same-o, same-o, if the Suns would have gone on that streak, right, and put mm-hmm. together a run to possibly get in there if there was a play-in game. That's my only kind of skepticism. Just because there's the bubble, you're there. It's like, let's make the best out of the situation. So that's my only kind of fear, is if we incorporate this in a regular in a regular scenario without a pandemic going on, what the Suns put on that street? Because I do think Memphis um, and Portland, I, I do think this, the scenario would have played out very similar. But something with you know the Suns just going on an amazing street to get into the playoffs, it's different when you're in your home arena. Like it seems hopeless. I, I just don't see the same thing happening compared to this scenario. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should just uh, do away with home courts and play on a neutral court every time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I was actually rooting for the Grizzlies to win on Saturday just so we could get them playing again on Sunday because that game was so great down to the wire. Um, but, but yeah, I think any time that you can do something that adds meaningful games to the season, especially the regular season at the end of the year where I, I would say the last five years – the last dozen games or so of the season for each team is kind of a joke. Like you, you know where you are. There's very, very few teams that it feels like they're playing meaningful games. You have a lot of teams that are just resting guys, getting ready for the playoffs. It makes sense. But if you can pepper in some of these games where, hey, this has a seating implementation, um, implication right here, you win now or you go home, I, I think that's great to keep people engaged and interested and just kind of keep Twitter on fire, if nothing else. I agree. So, man, let's hop into the playoff preview. Um, I think this is very interesting, uh, as you probably um, could anticipate. No one could expect the season um, going in this direction. And I'm just wondering, overall, with all these teams, the sense of desperation. I think that's going to be a theme, looking at all these series. What is truly on the line for these teams? Because previously, I thought there was more on the line just because of expectations of seasons past. Whereas now, we're in a lot of a different circumstance where home court doesn't really matter. Uh, Travel doesn't really matter. 
um, the, I guess, the increased chances of injuries could be a factor. So let's hop into the first matchup. Western Conference will start there first. Um, the Lakers will take on the Portland Trailblazers. Matt, you mentioned it. Portland gets in winning their play-in game against Memphis. Um, they defeat them 126 to 122. So I think with this series, it comes down to the Lakers still adjusting to the bubble. You know, as we discussed earlier, LeBron didn't play that great in there. Anthony Davis seemed to be the person kind of carrying them. We've discussed kind of the Lakers. They're the weirdest team in the bubble because we have people saying, you know, they are the odds-on favorite to win the title. Yeah, myself saying they're the most overrated team in the NBA. Um, <laughs> do you get any type of a chance for Portland to I, I to possibly do anything? I mean, we've seen Damian Lillard just be unconscious, but at the same time, I mean, he's a human being. I mean, he needs rest. <laughs> he's going to have to take some games off. So do you think this is going to be a kind of Laker 76ers scenario with Allen Iverson, you know, where Iverson just went off for one game, but – the Lakers destroyed them the rest of the series? Mm. Or do you think Portland has an actual shot to make some noise in a series? Great question. I, I think, so we, we've praised Portland this whole time so far, and they've been a great story. I do think that that team is, is deep. Um, but I do think here, running into the one seed with the Lakers, which, you know, they worked so hard to get that one seed, and, and it's a year, you know, on these neutral courts, like we... We never could have anticipated where seeding really doesn't matter all that much other than potentially the easier matchup with the team. Portland is a tough eight seed. I give them a lot of credit, but keep in mind they were down to the wire with a Memphis team that let's be honest is not great. And and some of that is fatigue setting in, I'm sure. So that's got to factor in. Uh, um, So I, I have this series going Lakers in six is, is going to be my pick. I think Portland has nobody to guard LeBron and slow him down. Portland has bigs in Whiteside and Nurkic. Nurkic has been great. Whiteside even um, was great in that Nets game. Yeah. Uh, very, very high production and only 15 minutes on the court. But I don't think they have someone versatile enough to stop Anthony Davis. And I think LeBron's going to be able to do whatever he wants. I mean, don't tell me Carmelo Anthony is going to slow down LeBron James. Everyone's <laughs> no been on this mellow tear. Uh, I think it's a little bit silly really? because I, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> let me say, I'm, I'm sorry for the digression, but I, but I have to bring this up because it's a pet peeve. I think people saying mellow now, granted they're, they're extremists, of course, that said mellows washed up. He'll never play in the league again. I think the main thing people were saying, though, is Melo is not going to be your prime option again. I think that's the main thing I got as people's sentiment. Um, and so, I mean, for Melo to come in and score 15 points a game, that's great. I'm so happy he's back in the league. It's, it's better with him in the league. He's been a good third scoring option, maybe even fourth, actually, now that Nurkic is back. But, I mean... He's hit some clutch shots. You have to give him that. But he's also so wide open on these jumpers because of the distraction of trying to guard Lillard and CJ McCollum, who are knocking shots down. So I I don't want to turn this into like a huge like bashing Carmelo Anthony, but I would tell people to settle down just a little bit against Melo. And I think uh, we're going to see that kind of um, 
I don't know, the the skill difference between Braun and Mello we're going to see in this series that's going to be exposed. And I, I just think LeBron's LeBron may tiptoe into this, which is why I'm giving Portland two games, but I think he's going to be able to do whatever he wants ultimately. And I've got the Lakers in six. How do you see this playing out? Do you give Portland a better shot than I do? I really want to give Portland a good shot to win this series, but I'm, I say that about the Lakers in terms of them being overrated. So you might might think I might pick the, the you know Lakers in seven. I'm gonna pick the Lakers in five. <laughs> oh I, wow! <laughs> I don't I don't like Portland's defense. It's atrocious, and mm, yeah. I especially in the interior. I just think Anthony Davis is gonna have a field day. As good as Whiteside has been, he's just gonna eat both of them, both their bigs alive. I. I have not been impressed. I just think it's more like, hey, we're just going to outscore as many points as possible. I think if Portland's defense was better, I'd be inclined to see them cause some problems. Because what I like about Portland is the mellow factor. I will, I don't, know, I, I'll disagree with you slightly. Sure, <laughs> I think you need you need players like that in the playoffs. I, yeah. I, I'll agree with you in terms of him being like this. You know, can he be a second on that team? I don't think so. But I do think in the playoffs when you need guys to turn it on. We've seen it with LeBron, right, especially with the Heat. I mean, you, you look at what the Heat did with Chris Bosh and um, Dwayne Wade. The rest of their teams was mediocre, right? They have Mike Miller. They had, you know, other players, the Birdman. They had players you thought were washed up. Same thing with Cleveland. They turned mm-hmm. out to be huge factors. And I think for Portland – you take a look at their scoring options. CJ McCollum, I don't know how he's doing it. He has a fractured back. He has hit some huge shots, even though he had a slow start. I think with Portland, they are a dangerous cocktail of yeah. causing some problems. I just think defensively, it's going to be a field day. So I'm going to see like the Lakers taking maybe game one off or even the second game off. And then just killing them later on just because they're aggravated. And I'm going to see that being like a first quarter where Portland has a huge league and all of a sudden you just see LeBron turn it on. I mean, we've seen that before. And especially where I think the circumstances actually, once LeBron gets used to not playing with fans, I think it's going to actually help because he'll be able to rest. He won't have to travel. A lot of those annoying things that he won't have to handle before, he has it plays to his advantage now. And I just think the defense I just don't like. And plus, as much as... I have wishy-washy feelings about Rondo. I'm seeing now where Rondo's going to be available and he's going to be able to play. So um, if he starts, I mean, there you go. You have Rondo. You have um, Davis. I mean, you have LeBron. I mean, we'll see about Kyle Kuzma. I'm not really quite sold on him yet. Everybody keeps hyping him up as this, like, third option. I don't see it. Did but, you see that buzzer beater, though? <laughs> eh, I, I thought of you when he hit that. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, I just I was not sold on him. It's the same thing when they talked about Brandon Ingram when he played for the Lakers. I'm like, I just don't see it with this guy. I don't really understand. And I hate going off potential, especially when you have a guy who is having a slow start. Like the Zion thing is different to which he has weight issues. But you've seen – the eye test tells you he could be a superstar in the league. But with these other two guys, I just don't see it at all. But so overall – the defense is a massive concern. I think with LeBron and AD, I respect Anthony Davis so much that these guys alone, they're just going to eat Portland for lunch. So I have the Lakers in five. 
Yeah, and I, I think I would say the same thing the other way around in that even with Rondo back, I don't think the Lakers have anyone that can really stop Damian Lillard. No way. But at least with Anthony Davis, they're going to have some sort of element of rim protection. And even with JaVale McGee under there, like That's you're true. not going to see them getting to the basket as easy as they were against the Nets and the Grizzlies, like we saw those last two games for the Trailblazers. So you've got a little bit more rim protection, at least with the Lakers, even though I wouldn't say their defense is fantastic. Um, But I think you're going to get more tired in giving performances like Damian Lillard has given all throughout his time in the bubble, hence bubble player of of the year, I guess. <laughs> um, best player in the bubble, best bubble maker, I don't know, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so I think you're going to see Damian Lillard tire as the series goes along. And I think just degree of difficulty for him is so much higher to win that series than it is for LeBron, who's not going to be, able to be guarded and even Davis. I mean, I think Davis could potentially play Nurkic off the floor if they don't find a solution. Cause he, he's, he doesn't have near the athleticism that, that Davis does. So it's going to be close. tough for him to keep up with Davis. If by chance he, he is somehow matched up with him or if their offense is just using the pick and roll for these mismatches. Um, so, so I, I agree with what you're saying there. Uh, so you've got Lakers in five. I've got Lakers in six. Should we move on to another series? Sure. Which, which, uh, pick a series, man. Um, go ahead. What other series is catching your eye? I guess let's just go through the West since we're there already. Um, sure. Let's talk about um, the Clippers, who are the two seed, and Dallas is the seven seed. Uh, I believe Dallas lost every regular season matchup and maybe beat the Clippers in the bubble. I apologize. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Uh, but I know that during the regular season, the Clippers basically did whatever they wanted with Dallas. That's kind of how I see this series to be honest, is that while I think Dallas has a better offense than the Clippers, I think their lack of defense, um, more than makes up for that for the Clippers. So to their, to Dallas's disadvantage. So I just see the Clippers being able to do whatever they want to do, as long as they are engaged and there aren't any other off court issues that that we're not aware of. The Clippers should have uh, their full roster available to them. So as, as long as Kawhi is healthy, um, you know, I have the Clippers winning in five. Did you have any other thoughts or are you seeing this any differently with uh you know, Doncic, who you're talking about so highly earlier and, and who I love as well, for the record. I I am on the Luka bandwagon and Przingis. Nice. I, I bought stock in Przingis with, with New York. I thought the way they treated him was a disgrace. I, I think he has a ton of potential. I like these two in the bubble. Um, I like this matchup. I again, I don't really like the Clippers. I'm sorry to say, I have nothing to do with Kawhi. Paul George makes me nervous, to be honest. Like it's so weird, just hearing a lot of analysts like go after Damian Lillard in particular, Skip Bayless for not being clutch. But what about Paul <laughs> George? Like what? You thought, Damian Lillard has hit so many shots that have mattered. Like what about Paul George? <laughs> right? Like come on, man. Like in terms of comparing clutchness. He has come up like on the losing end. And this is a very dangerous matchup for the Clippers. I mean, if I was a betting person, 
I would pick the Mavericks to win this series. I might, I probably would, if my life depended on it, I'm picking the Clippers. As, like, <laughs> making this prediction, I'm picking the Clippers. But hey, if I was a millionaire and I had, you know, I don't know, five grand to blow, sure, I pick the Mavericks. Um, a lot of the t- Mavericks, kind of the rest of their supporting cast makes me nervous. And overall, I think the Clippers, I like, I do probably like Patrick Beverly, despite his trash talk against Damian Lillard. I, he's an agitator. You need somebody like that. I love like Beverly. That. Me yep. too. He's a, <laughs> he gets on my nerves, but he reminds me of Joe Noah. So I can't, it'd be a hypocrite to really trash him too much because Noah's the same way in his prime with Chicago. So I think overall, I like the Clippers. I like, I liked him in five. I know it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> um, like it, it's so weird because I just my my issue is with the Dallas Mavericks is that on the surface they look really good, but they they lose close games. Like they, I think they almost lead the league in that differential of games that are within five to ten points. Like I, I can't pick a team like that when he loses close games. That's just a massive issue, and that's reflective. As much as I love Przingis and Luca, it's kind of on them. Like if you're gonna be real superstars in this league, you win those games, and you're not leading the league in losing those games. But it, they are they're a sexy pick. They <laughs> really are. Um, I can't do it, and it's the the clutch factor. Especially with Kawhi, you can't doubt Kawhi. Basically, you look at him and San Antonio and Toronto. I, I can't pick against him. And really, with the Mavericks, again, their defense. I, I like teams with a solid defense. That's why I like the Denver Nuggets to really be a problem. Um, so my opinion, my thing is them being soft as tissue on the defensive end. I'm picking the Clippers, and I like them in five. Cool. We agree there. Yeah, there's a meme that I saw. This probably isn't great podcasting to describe a meme, but go check it out if you can find it. There's a meme that says every Dallas Mavericks game, and it's a picture of a horse. And so, of course, we read from left to right. So you see like this tail and the musculature in the hind leg, and it's like beautifully drawn with all this shading. And then all of a sudden it just fades out at the end, and it looks like uh, a picture that maybe my five-year-old son t- tried to draw of a horse head <laughs> uh, to where it's just like these scribbles and looks terrible. And I think that's kind of what you just outlined in, in your analysis there is that the Dallas still hasn't found a way to close games together. Porzingis and Luca are awesome on offense together. And, and this entire team, uh, Rick Carlisle for the past five years has been an amazing, amazing offensive coach Agreed. that just hasn't hasn't had the the talent around him to have that playoff success. Um, but closing out games is a, is a huge issue for that team. Even in the bubble, we saw that. That's part of the reason that I was so excited and delighted when they beat the Milwaukee Bucks is because this isn't a team that traditionally closes out very well. And I think we're going to see that play out because you have – even though Paul George has had struggles in the playoffs, I think just having Patrick Beverly and Kawhi Leonard on this team, again, if they're healthy and good to go, that's enough to close these games out. Did you want to move on and, and give thoughts on uh, Denver versus Utah next? Yeah. Um, so this I'll, is the 3-6 seed. Yes, correct. Denver's um, 3 seed, Utah 6. Sorry, go for it. No, no worries. Um, I'll, just, I'll say this. I... I, I really like the Denver Nuggets. Um, I really do. Me too. I I think for me, I'll just come out outside and say it. 
I'm picking the Nuggets to go to the NBA Finals in this. Oh, in this, I am. I think normally under with home court, I wouldn't pick them, but I just don't like the Lakers and Clippers, and certainly I don't like the Rockets with their small balls. Uh, um, I I just think this is a environment where. A lot of the NBA fans are not going to like the Nuggets in the finals because they're not a sexy team, but I really do like this team a lot. I like their interior. I think Jamal Murray, I think shown signs as being like their second um, option. I I just, I really do. I think overall with, with the Joker, um, he has proven to take the, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know, break or hiatus, super serious with his weight and I think yep. they are going to be a force to be reckoned with in the playoffs. What makes me nervous <laughs> is that I think the Nuggets are – I'm sorry, the Jazz are kind of like their kryptonite almost. They play so similar. <laughs> and I think Donovan Mitchell I think has shown really signs of really turning it on. And especially Rudy Gobert, even though I'm picking the, the Nuggets to go to the finals, I can easily see them getting bounced in this series. <laughs> I really do. Um, I am not secure in, in the Denver Nuggets winning this series at all. I am really not. Um, I think this is going to go seven. Um, mm. I'm picking the Nuggets in seven in this series. Nice. I like that. And I like your strong pick of Denver to the finals. Uh, you know, I hope if you feel confident about that, you're putting some money on that. You could win big right. Uh, right. <laughs> with how much folks like the Lakers and, and the Clippers. Um, so I, in large part, agree with you. Uh, overall, just, just to be brief, I think in the bubble, Utah's momentum is down, whereas Denver's, I think, is increasing and it is positive momentum. I think behind the scenes, we've heard a lot about chemistry issues with Utah. And I'll just be honest, I'm not a big fan of the Jazz as they're assembled right now. As much as I love Joe Inglis, I think there are real problems between their two superstars. So when you get to these extremes in the playoffs and everything's on the line, if your two superstars don't like each other, you know, we, we saw an invincible Lakers team melt down to an improbable Detroit Pistons finals team. Uh, now, that's that's kind of an unfair comparison because this series doesn't have uh, that much hype behind it. But I like Denver as well. I think their balanced attack on offense is greater than the defensive culture of Utah. And I don't think, that, you know, we just saw these guys play to double overtime. I called it the game of the bubble, like the best game we saw in the bubble. I would still, yeah, I would still say it it was the best game in the bubble. In my opinion, I, I didn't like what I saw from Gobert defending Jokic. I think Jokic is too diverse or too, uh, too versatile and too creative for him to really be slowed down all that much. Um, You could also go bear, argue Gobert is the guy to do it. But with what Jokic can also do out on the perimeter, it, it can just be problematic for Utah. So I have Denver in six. I like them against Utah a little more than you do, I think. But I think you like them down the stretch in the playoffs better than I do. So it's going to be cool to see um, how this series plays out and, and then certainly how how Denver uh, performs in the playoffs. I, I took notes of you telling me Denver the finals. So so we're going to come yeah. back and talk about we'll this for sure. It's going to be exciting. Um, you have anything else for that series? No, I agree with you. I echo your sen- sentiments um, about Utah. You're right. Um, Gobert and 
Donovan Mitchell, I mean, I think even before the whole uh, COVID fiasco, um, they had they weren't necessarily the best friends either. Yep. Um, and especially with that team, I mean, Mike Connolly Jr. He's leaving the bubble. Um, what is it? Is it? Oh, I that's right. The circumstances. The um, birth of his son. That's right. So you, we've seen it with the whole Lou Williams fiasco, which I think is kind of looking back at it overblown. I mean, dude just got some hot wings. I mean, if he was going to Popeyes, I mean, there'd be no issue. But at the same time, if you look at <laughs> Mike Connolly, I mean. You never know if he does the same thing. I mean, if you go into any fast food or any restaurant, whatever, I mean, you, you, you know, you take your life kind of, you know, you want to operate as normal. So if he's just going to a grocery store, he comes into the bubble, he tests positive for COVID. I mean, he's a huge part of that team. So that's going to be a factor. I mean, he's already going to miss some time. Especially without because, Bojan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I don't know. In my opinion, it, it makes me nervous to pick Utah, but if things are clicking, I mean, all bets are off. So we'll see. I think it's going to be a very compelling series, even though I a lot of mainstream fans are going to skip over it. But if you want some entertaining basketball, I think it's a really, really going to be a fun series to watch. Totally agree. And I'll say the only thing that's that's like a game breaker potentially is if Donovan Mitchell just goes off because he does have that potential. I don't see it happening, obviously, since I picked Denver in six. But I, I think he has that potential to go off for 40, 50 points in, in some of these games and just carry that team. Again, I don't see that happening against Denver. But that's kind of one thing that I see as maybe an X factor or, or a spoiler uh, to to our predictions here. Uh, last series we have for... The West is Houston at the four seed, my Rockets versus the OKC Thunder at the five seed. I got to tell you right off the bat, this was my hardest series to pick. We have Russell Westbrook was just reported. He will miss game one with a quad strain that he had an MRI on. So Russell Westbrook is a little in doubt. Now, I don't know that he's going to miss any other games beyond game one. Nobody knows that at this point. But that's that's a huge loss when, in my opinion, these teams are very evenly matched. In my opinion, you have a coach on the, the court that's better than any of those other players in Chris Paul as, as far as managing the game and controlling the game. Um, I know some people will say James Harden, but I think X's and O's is wise. Chris Paul is better. Um And I think you have a coach that's better on the bench. Billy Donovan, I like better than Mike D'Antoni, especially in the playoffs, even though Billy Donovan hasn't won a championship in the NBA. uh, I do think he is a better X's and O's coach than Mike D'Antoni. See D'Antoni's defensive coaching schemes in the past, if if you don't believe me. Although Houston has been better um, back when they had Clint Capella. Um, and it's interesting because Houston has the small ball lineup. So you have a lot of randomness with how many threes are they going to make a night? So that, I mean, you could have blowouts, you could have um, blowouts in either direction. I mean, you, you could have Houston winning by 20 in some of these games. You could have Houston losing by 20 just based on how three point attempts are going for the night. So um, I think this series could go either way and, and just to be as brief as, as possible and wrap up and, and let you go. I do see the star power of Harden 
Um, and I think all the negativity that he's heard and quite honestly deserved to this point about his playoffs record, I think he seems more serious about that and locked in this year. Uh, even if we haven't no, noticed maybe like a difference in his physical condition, I, I do think he doesn't look sluggish coming into the bubble. So I think he's been doing something at least, even if he doesn't look like like a total beast as sure. we were kind of being told and, and as I honestly was kind of hyping on an earlier episode. But I, I still think he's taken this pretty seriously. So based on star power, I am going to pick Houston in six. But this is the one that I feel the most unsure about of all the series that we have, even and we haven't even touched on the Eastern Conference yet. This is the one that I feel the most scared of my pick. Um, what do you have for your pick and, and what do you see as some of the keys for this series? I feel more confident. I'm just not sold on the Oklahoma City roster at this mm. point to pick them. And I'll just make it brief because you, you echo my sentiments. I, I will say this. The, the Rockets are going to be the most interesting, one of the most interesting teams in this bubble because of how they play, right? We're going to see if yep. this experiment works. And especially with no home court, with like a lot of the external factors eliminated with tons of rest, we're going to see if this works. This small ball thing works. There's going to be no excuses if they just get destroyed by the Thunder <laughs> in embarrassing fashion. I think it will confirm that this method is terrible. Or it could be some credence if they make a run into the playoffs, like. It could work in the opposite direction. So I am very curious to see. I think this is one of the series to watch just because of their style. Um, w losing Westbrook's going to hurt them. So I'm curious to see how that's going to work. But OKC, I'm not, I don't like the roster. So to me, but at the same time, with the Rockets, again, it's just like, let's just outscore their opponents. It's, it's kind of very similar to Portland in that manner. So I'm agreeing with you. I like the Rockets in, in six, even though I could see them sweeping the Thunder, to be honest. Um, wow. I But I just think I'm not sold on the inconsistency of the Rockets. They are very inconsistent. You're right. They're, you, we don't know what's up with them defensively. And But I did see, to give credit to James Harden, there are some possessions. Um, just watching the bubble, he did look locked in on on defense. So we'll see. Uh, but overall, I, I like the Rockets in this series. I'm more confident than him than you are. But if there's some shenanigans, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me. And I, I'll say, just to add a little bit more, if Westbrook's out for more than two games, I think I would change my pick to Oklahoma City. I, I think oh, wow. I'm probably more high on the Thunder than you are. I, I think what I see from them is they have some length. And they have some speed to keep up with Houston's smaller lineups. So I, I think that could give Houston problems. I actually think it's one of the worst teams for Houston to be matched up against in the first round. Uh, and also you have that Chris Paul was on that team very recently. And we all know how big of a student of the game Chris Paul is. I mean, he, he's going to have some inside secrets on those guys. Yeah. Revenge and, is going to be a factor. Yeah, yeah, which I, I love it. I love this. I mean, we know the history of Harden and Westbrook with OKC. So this is going to be a fascinating series from that perspective. I, I would, honestly, if, if Westbrook is going to miss significant time, I, I would change my pick to the Thunder. But for now, I've got it. Houston and six. And you said you've got the same Houston and six? Correct, yes. Cool. Should we move to the Eastern Conference? Yeah, let's do it. 
Awesome. So we have, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time here unless you have something that I don't, but Milwaukee as the one seed versus Orlando as the eight seed. I simply wrote Milwaukee in four and that they can't be stopped. Um, Do you have anything to add to that? Same thing. Bucks in four. Um, I think we're in agreement. Not much to say about the magic. Um, They lose um, their interior. I think I like Aaron Gordon. Um, I really do think he's underrated, um, but I agree. It's, just, it's too much, and it's okay. It's a good experience for the Atlanta Magic, and it's something for them to build on. But they're going to get destroyed by the Bucks. As there's no, there's no shame in that. They're the bubble home team, but uh, yes, they, they are. Yeah. I totally agree. They're they're going to get wrecked. I think, like we talked about a lot last week, Giannis is hungry, so that, so that's why I have it as four games. I mean, I don't even see them missing the mark on one game uh, certainly could happen, but, but really even beyond a five game series, I think would be a huge disappointment for the bucks. Um, so let's, let's move right along to the next series, which I think I have some pretty short analysis on as well. Maybe you do, maybe you see more since you're pretty high on the nets, but we've got Toronto as the two seed versus Brooklyn as the seven seed. Um, I, I think this this matchup and that first matchup kind of shows the difference between the depth of the East and West Conference, whereas we see like Lakers versus Portland, you and I, we at least both thought it was interesting, even though we both both picked L.A. Uh, the Clippers versus Dallas, there are things in there that are interesting. We both respect Dallas, at least as an offensive team. This one, I, I see Toronto again as just outclassing the nets. I mean, especially given, you know, we all know the nets aren't at full strength. They don't have Kyrie. They don't have KD until next year. So I have this as Toronto in five. I wouldn't be shocked if Toronto swept this just with their experience. And I think they have been a mix of showing flashes of what they can do and their greatness, uh, their cohesiveness as a team. They've shown that in the bubble and they've also had games where I felt like it's it's a little slower paced and maybe they're just holding back, holding off for the playoffs, kind of the traditional top two seed thing to do before the playoffs begin at, at the end of the regular season there. So I have Toronto in five. How do you see this series going? Do you think Brooklyn can take any more games or do you see about the same? Yeah, we're in agreement. I, I will say that the the Nets I'm really impressed with. I really do. It's not going to be indicative in my my pick, but um, I I think it's it's going to be very very interesting to see Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving with this team, and especially when Durant is playing and when you know Kyrie is playing, like when they're not playing together. So if one gets hurt or something, how the team responds with one guy being a leader when the other guy's sitting on a bench. It's going to be fascinating. Um, mm. I think the, the Nets are going to be the most fascinating team because I think Kyrie Irving is a phenomenal player. I think as a skilled player, I think as much as I like Damian Lillard, I think Kyrie Irving's twice the player Damian Lillard is. Wow. Talent. Yes. Talent. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. However, his attitude sucks. And that's where Damian Lillard has the edge. He's just a better team player. He's a better leader. And it sucks because I think Kyrie can be a awesome superstar, but he's he's a terrible teammate. And yeah. we've seen that all the way with talented players. And this is it's just indicative. This is, 
basically they, the Nets put this team together very quickly for the bubble, just through circumstances, through COVID tests, you know, with Kyrie, Durant, and they've been performing. And so and we've heard things in the beginning of the season, all this stuff about all this drama with Kyrie early. We were like in the first couple of weeks of the season. Yeah. So to me, I, I, I just think once we see that later on, I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment. And saying that in my in me being impressed with the Nets, the Raptors are going to beat them in four games. Um, I think the Raptors going seven and one. They have been the quieter team in the bubble. I can't wait to see them against the Bucks. I am re- I'm looking forward to that. And to me, as long as the Nuggets, if the Nuggets don't get to the you know NBA Finals, I think they're one of these two teams are my favorite to win the title. I really do. Um, I like these both teams. I like them defensively. I like how sure of themselves they are, their toughness. And mm-hmm. it's weird because what we thought about the NBA of having like multiple superstars, they break that mold, both of them, right? I mean, especially especially with the Raptors, with Pascal Siakam, and then with everything else, you, you don't see that second superstar there. And I think even with the Bucks, I mean, granted, they have Chris Middleton and, you know, they have Brooke Lopez and, of course, Giannis. But, you know, you don't see the Bucks loaded with, like, you know, two other all-stars on that team. You don't. So I think we've seen a, a paradigm shift, possibly, the way we think of how a team should be when they're trying to win the, the title. And in my opinion, it's weird for me to say this, as long as the Nuggets don't – if the Nuggets do not make it, I think one of those two teams, as we will get as to our predictions, you know, later on in the playoffs. But I really like Toronto – you know, as as a favorite to win the title, I, I just been impressed. They have really impressed me overall, and especially in this bubble, they're under the radar. They have the least amount of pressure. I mean, even if they get bounced in the first round by some kind of freakish thing that happens, um, I think it'll just be blamed on Kawhi not being there, even though they've had an awesome record in the East. Uh, I think somehow they'll get a lot of sympathy. So I think they are highly dangerous, and I really like them um, to really just dominate the Brooklyn Nets. So you're kind of saying that you think Toronto, those guys on that team, maybe the pressure on them is coming from themselves, their own determination to win and not from outside, from the media or things like that, since they have that kind of Kawhi excuse from the media anyway. Yeah, it's an incredible job by Nick Nurse. This team has no right to be as good as it is. I mean, you take a look at teams. They've a lot of teams have folded under you know less pressure. Look at the Bulls, right? I mean, that's a perfect example. When you know Derrick Rose got hurt, they crumbled, and you've seen this team adjust, and you've seen other players step up. Whereas with my Bulls, let's keep it real. Like Luau Deng, I mean, he was in that position, right? Like everybody thought Luau Deng was going to be this second player. When is Luau Deng going to take off and be this player? He wasn't. He could never be that player, mm-hmm. and the Bulls suffered because of it. And we've seen with the Raptors, Kawhi leave, Pascal Siakam step up, and he's been a perennial, you know, leader on this team. And I think it's awesome to see. It's it's really another great story in this playoffs, and I'm excited to see where they can go. Yeah, they they just have such a nice fit to that team, and I, I've said it every week. So, uh, you know, maybe this is the triple double podcast drinking game, but with Toronto <laughs> Raptors, I love their continuity. That that's what. We've talked about for for several weeks, and I think everyone in that on that team just has a really clear definition of their role and where they can contribute. Um, Siakam has definitely stepped up, uh, like you said, but I also think he hasn't had to shoulder the entire um, 
load that Kawhi left behind. He hasn't had to step up and be Kawhi Leonard. He can just be the best version of himself. And, and thankfully, that, that's a very good basketball player uh, for the Raptors. So, um, so I'm in agreement with you. Did you have any, any other comments about that series? I, I think we see eye to eye that Toronto's just going to have too much for Brooklyn to handle. I didn't. Uh, we can move on to the next series. Oh, and I think you're spot on about Kyrie, by the way. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, next series is um, Boston at the three seed versus Philadelphia at the six seed. We know you and I talked about it that Ben Simmons is injured, unlikely to return to the Sixers unless they have a deep playoff run. Even then, I, th- I think that's very unlikely. Um, so the, this series is really interesting. Um, I, I think Philadelphia all depends on Joel Embiid at this point. I, I think he has players around him that are going to be trying hard. I think when Ben Simmons left with that injury, we saw for the first few games, a lot of those players stepping up and playing hard, even if they weren't winning. So, so I don't get the sense that this team is resigned to just lay down and die. Al Horford, you know, in in spite of not having championship success, he is, I think, a good, solid veteran leader. He hasn't been fully happy in Philadelphia. There there have been a lot of guys that haven't been happy in Philadelphia. I mean, see Jimmy Butler, for example. So maybe there is a culture issue in this team. Maybe, as you and I speculated, maybe like Brett Brown, maybe he's past his time. Uh, in Philadelphia, we're going to get a lot of answers, I think, to those questions from this series, because I do think Philadelphia, in spite of all their faults, they do have a, a weaker Celtics team that they have the potential to upset. Ultimately, though, let's keep it real. I think Tatum has looked great. I think the wings on the Celtics are going to give the Sixers huge problems. And even though I don't think they have an answer for Joel Embiid, I, I think their wing play is going to overcome that. So I have the Celtics in six. How do you see this playing out? Oh, it's tough. The, the, the desperation in this series is all over. <laughs> all, all over it. Um, I personally think there's a lot on the line for Embiid. Um, let's face it. Yeah. Last year was pretty brutal for him. I mean, we saw that shot Kawhi took, and he was humiliated. And to me, this is this is ultimately what he wants, right? Ben Simmons is gone. This is his team. Let's see what he can do. I mean, you want to be the man. You want to talk all the trash and yeah. um, be this perennial player in this league. Let's see what you got. Like, this is crunch time, right? And there's no, like you said, the interior matchup favors him. So if he plays badly... The blame's going to wrestle fall on him, and he's been inconsistent. I liked Embiid. I, I was high on him very early. Me um, too. But he, he has shown, at least in my opinion, um, I think a lack of mental toughness. I hate to say that. Um, yep. They really make me feel uneasy. If Embiid was really turning it on in this bubble, I'd be, I'd be highly tempted to pick them, but I can't do it. Um, I'm going to pick Boston and Six. I know our picks are going to be a little bit boring, but I... They are really they make they make or break with Embiid. He's so inconsistent. I can't do it. Um, I think the Celtics, like you said, Tatum, 
has proven to be a superstar in this league. He's going to be a pretty all-star for the Celtics. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see whoever team gets knocked out, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the coach as well. Um, you know, Boston has been a disappointment. I mean, you take a look at them as his three seed. A lot of people expected them to possibly be, you know, at least better than Toronto. And they have not. And they they have been a disappointment as well. But I do like the Celtics in six. And again, some changes are going to have to be made. There's going to be some real soul searching for this organization. Um, even if they make it to the second round, I, I would say. So I think a lot of it's on the line. I think it's a compelling series because both teams are kind of desperate. And I think the, the future of how they proceed with this, the franchises for both of them hinge on this series. So I'm excited to see it. I, um, despite kind of knowing the outcome, I think the desperation, seeing MB what he does, I think it's going to be very compelling. Yeah, two things real quick. Uh, I think Brad Stevens was just given an extension. Oh, that's right. By the Celtics, so there is a little security there. But but I think you're right in that this team has disappointed this year. I, I think a lot of people were expecting them to be the top seed in the East, uh, even with losing Kyrie Irving. Um, but you know, it seems like it's taken them some time to to find the fit with. Uh, Kemba Walker coming in and then also just the development of Tatum at the start of the year at least felt like it had kind of dropped off I think he's done better since I mean starting in the second half of the year uh, even even before the bubble I think he's gotten better Hayward has gotten into more of a rhythm as well Um, so so I think things are looking up for the Celtics but but I think you're right in that there is a lot of pressure on that coach. And I mean, heck in this league, winning coach of the year doesn't even doesn't. <laughs> give you job security. So, it's uh, so you never know <laughs> what could happen. I mean, if they know show all bets are off as good of a coach as I think you and I both agree that Brad Stevens is um, with Embiid, you know, I, I don't fault him for losing to that Raptors team last year. And that, that was a historic playoff run by Kawhi. But I think you're spot on that this is the year where, you know, it is time to prove it on the court or kind of slow down with the trash talk. And, you know, I, I think he deserves a lot of criticism this year if if the Sixers don't advance. So it feels like in this series, the stakes are really high. Zach Lowe, one of my favorite NBA writers, is is still high on the Sixers, just not willing to give up on his opinion that they were going to have a deep playoff run this year. So, you know, it does it does feel like the expectations are still really high for Philadelphia. And, you know, I'm still of the opinion that if they lose this series to the Celtics, I think Brett Brown is gone, even with the injury to Ben Simmons there. So it's going to be fascinating to see. What happens here again? Both you and I have Boston in six. Uh, any other thoughts on this series? No, uh, not really. As I'm excited to see that the desperation is going to be beyond. So we can move on to our final series. Awesome. Yes, our final series here, the 4-5 matchup. Again, similarly to the 4-5 in the West, and I guess that makes sense because your seating is so close. But I do think... It is the case this year that these two series feel like the closest and the hardest to judge for me. Whereas other years, it's it's felt like the four or five hasn't really been as difficult for me to predict. Um, so we have the Pacers at the four seed versus the Miami Heat at the five seed. Um, 
So, man, this is, again, really difficult, and I am going to be conflicted in my pick. I think you might disagree with me strongly here, but, hey, that's great uh, if you do. Uh, so I I am biased. I love the Heat. I love Coach Spolstra. I think Coach Spolstra is more of a threat than uh, Coach McMillan of of the Pacers. There's That's also totally true. moving pieces on the Pacers that I'm just not sure of. Like, is Oladipo coming in? Is he going to be good? How is he going to look uh, if, if he's able to get there? Um, I also like that Jimmy Butler should be hungry this playoffs. He, he is another player, much like Embiid, who he left in Philadelphia. He, he is a player who should be really hungry for some playoff success. He's a guy that talks a lot about work ethic, how hard he works, how hard he wants to work all the time to be successful. So he should be hungry for a playoff win. I like that for the heat. I love Bam Adebayo. I mean, one of the, the better stories of this year and my pick for most improved player. Um, and I like the Heat's star power. I, I like looking through the roster of the Heat a little bit more than the Pacers. So having said all that, I'll make my pick. I have Miami in six. I do think the Pacers could win this series, no doubt. I have Pacers could roll the Heat. They have that type of potential. But I see this going. I'm going to give it to Coach Spolstra, and I've got Heat in six. How do you see this playing out? Um, that to be boring again. Um, the only thing we disagree with is the number of games. I like the heat in seven. Um, and I like Jimmy Butler. I like Tyler hero. Um, I've always been yeah. on the Butler bandwagon. I think everybody, just <laughs> Matt knows this. I've been talking his ear off that the way he was dealt in Chicago was terrible. Um, he doesn't have the greatest attitude. I will say that about, you know, some teammates, but he Bit is an extremely diva. hard worker. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But he's a hard worker. Just ask him. Yeah. He he loves the game for sure. And this is a series, especially with TJ Warren, like he's engaged. I mean, this is personal. It's a rivalry. So I think we'll go back and yeah. forth. I'm not both both teams. I'm not really enamored with their depth. And I think they're going to get destroyed in the next round. So my level of caring is not that much. I'll fully admit it. Um, it I'll watch the highlights of this series. I'm not exactly compelled to see it. Um, even though I think the basketball will be, be quite good, but just what's on the line, even with like the Celtics 76ers, as much as I'm kind of down on both those teams, at least I can see them making some noise in the deeper parts of the playoffs where these two teams, I can care less. So um, I'm like, yeah, Heat in seven, but with, especially with Oladipo being a massive question mark and the next round, you, you know, I believe it's the Bucks um, Orlando winner. That they'll have to face, you know, yeah. beat the Bucks. So I think it's a terrible matchup, and the Bucks will have an easy time with both teams. But you know, I think the but the Jimmy Butler, um, T.J. Warren um, battle will be very entertaining. So there's there's that. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be the main thing most people are looking at is either the highlights, like you said, because highlights are great to catch up on uh, and easy to find. Uh, on YouTube even. Um, but I, I think also just looking at the stat box and seeing just head to head, first of all, like in the highlights, did Jimmy Butler guard TJ Warren? Were they head to head like that? Which I think will probably happen. Uh, maybe not as much towards the late stretches of the game, but that's going to be fascinating. I want to see if like Jimmy 
is looking to really lock him down after their kind of back and forth through the season. Um, and, and yeah, just the stat line in general, like did TJ Warren, was he able to light up Jimmy Butler? Because if, if he's able to do that and if Indiana wins the series, I mean, we are now talking about TJ Warren as a potential star player, maybe not superstar, but star player and deserving of, of a much bigger contract when that time comes around, if, if he's able to take Jimmy Butler in this series. So there is a little excitement for a potential proving ground there, but I, I think you're right. I think casual fan probably isn't as interested in this series as, as you and I are, but could potentially go seven. Like you said, I don't think I picked any series, unfortunately it goes seven games. So hopefully I'll be wrong about that. Cause we did get a lot of close games, a lot of overtime games throughout the bubble play. So I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope we do get seven game series. I think these guys are going to play super hard overall in the playoffs. I, and now I'm talking overall the league, not just Pacers heat. I, I think they are going to be more refreshed in um, playing in this bubble and, and having less distractions, not having to worry about home tickets for your friends and family, at, at least initially until, um, you know, that one friend or family member is allowed into the bubble. But even then that's lower stress, I think, than people hitting you up uh, and just having to worry about travel more. So, so I think we are in for a great first round. I'm hoping a historic first round, you know, maybe, Lots of close series, maybe great ratings for the NBA. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Did you have any other topics you wanted to cover before we close out? No, man, that covers it. Um, I think overall this playoffs, I'm excited. I think, I'm unlike you, I hope my predictions are wrong It going seven because I hate the first round and it being a seven-round series. I wish it was five. <laughs> um, I just think it draws out the playoffs so much, and especially the first round. It, I mean, it kind of, I don't know. I mean, the, the most important rounds are how to get deeper in the playoffs, not necessarily the first round. I don't think we need to see seven games. But at the same time, it, it's going to be a huge experiment. I'm excited to see it, and we're going to see. So um, I'm ready to playoffs for, for the playoffs to start finally after this long wait. Yeah, and I'm with you there. I mean, I, w- I would be all in favor of a five-game first-round series. I more just mean I want some close games, some good action, uh, some some rivalries being built in these series. You know, we'll see what happens. One last thing I wanted to mention, and it's not really an NBA note, but it is an athlete note, and I know it's it's something that you care about. Um, Alex Smith is cleared for practice with the Washington football team, I guess we're calling them now. Um, so if if you haven't heard much about Alex Smith, even if you're not a football fan, I would encourage you to read up on it. I mean, two years, 17 surgeries, pretty improbable. I mean, questions about if he was going to survive and he is cleared to practice with the Redskins. I still have my doubts if he's actually going to ever be able to make it onto the field again. But just the fact that he is cleared to play football again, I I think is incredible and inspiring, shows his determination as a human being. Uh, I think it's, it's just a story that general sports fans and and any any human being just respecting the human element should be rooting for Alex Smith even if you're not a fan of of that football team uh so really encouraging to see that that he is cleared to to practice did you see that story and um did you have any thoughts on that before we wrap up here 
Um, I didn't see the story. I heard about it because at E60, the um, ESPN documentary series, did a whole thing profiling him. Yes. And with Alex Smith, I mean, he he played just uh, football talk. He played for my team, the 49ers. And also he played for the Utah Utes. So Matt and I have a little bit more of a personal connection because he played against the Lobos. So, yeah. you know, we've kind of – I think we see him play, right? Didn't we see him play once in person? Yeah, I, I believe yeah. it was that year that our Lobos almost upset the Utah yeah. Utes. That's right. When the Utes were nationally ranked and went on to beat Alabama. I believe that was the year Alex Smith was there. I might have that wrong. But, uh, but we did see him play the Lobos for sure. Yeah, it, it's a bummer. Just the NFL is such a brutal game, and the injuries, and it's the way they treat their players. I don't want to go into it all the way. It's just, it's just something where you have to have another level of mental toughness if things don't go your way. Um, and that's why I think I'll, I'll say this, and then we can wrap it up. Um, guys like Drew Brees, Tom Brady, even Peyton Manning, quarterbacks that are able to. This, withstand the wear and tear and consistently start year after year i mean that's a an amazing accomplishment i mean a lot of other quarterbacks um especially they don't they're not able to hang and it is they get hurt and it's just not their fault of their own it's just you're playing such a violent game so uh, hopefully alex smith he can be able to overcome this and you know be a success i, I don't personally think it's gonna be a football season this year but if there happens to be football i i hope i wish the best for him yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I don't even know that he's ever going to make it on the field again. Um, he, he's got a lot of work to do, even just with his walking gait. But he is at a point now that he can make the practice field and, and at least uh, train up some more there. You know, I'm shocked he was able to keep, I believe it was his right leg. I, I'm shocked he was able to keep it. Um, you know, there there are lots of times where, I, I think it was in that E60 documentary you, you were mentioning or, or, or uh, profile piece uh, where the doctors were recommending amputating that leg to save his life. Oh, wow. Jeez. And he didn't, he didn't want to do that. Um, so, I mean, you could, you could argue it's, it's stupid. You could argue it's courageous on his part. Um, you know, fine line, I would say. Uh, but I'm just so glad to see that he's okay. He's healthy because he was near the point of death. And um, yeah. And I mean, if you're in the NFL and you have a career longer than five years, um, I mean, props to you, you, you've hung through and, and made it through a very tough, brutal league. Um, but, you know, I, again, I'm more just interested in his, his resiliency and his ability to get through this injury and all the operations and everything to get this to this point. And it looks like at least if nothing else, he is going to be, you know, a fully functioning human being. Uh, even if he never makes it onto the field again, I think it's, it's just a huge victory in general. Um, so, you know, so, you know, shout out to Alex Smith. If you ever hear this props to you, good, sir. Uh, I wish you the best. And, uh, and with that, I think I, I'm good to wrap up. 
And with that, um, we'll let the interviews take it away. Right now, we have two great interviews. Um, we're going to start off with John Mugar. Um, he is the TBT founder and CEO. Again, um, TBT stands for the Basketball Tournament. Um, you might have caught it on ESPN if you're looking for any sports to watch. A um, fantastic basketball tournament. So he'll be able to give some more information and just go over um, the journey to get that tournament off the ground this year. And then we have WNBA writer Jen Hatfield right after that. Um, so Matt, for, for Matt Thomas, I'm Justin Goodrum. Stay tuned for John Mugar. And welcome back. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming John Mugar to the Triple Double Podcast. John, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. So John is the CEO of TBT, the basketball tournament. And I guess, first of all, I I just kind of wanted to start with just some basic information on the basketball tournament. Can you fill us in on what that is, what you guys do? Um, I'll I'll just let you take it away and just kind of describe for our fans, first and foremost, what the basketball tournament is. Yep, no problem. It's an annual single elimination um, March Madness formatted event, 64 teams in the summer on ESPN. and the winning team takes home a uh, a large sum of money. Some years, the first year is a half a million dollars, and it was a million dollars, and it's been at two million or thereabouts since. And um, we play across traditionally across the whole U.S. So, and we do it in July and, and early August. So it's a three and a half week event, just like March Madness. So we, uh, my my friend and I, since eighth grade or seventh grade, Dan Friel conceived of the concept way back in 2011 so we just finished our seventh tournament up and um it was uh, an interesting one this year so john i've been following this tournament um ever since it was uh first conceived i think the concept's awesome just because it gets really anybody involved um in creating it but this year it's kind of an unusual circumstance because of the pandemic so um, i was kind of reading about some interviews you've done and you seem always confident that this tournament um was going to happen um and as we know, you were able to, to pull it off. Um, can you kind of go over if you had any doubts um, just with dealing with the government or just the circumstances that this tournament may not have happened? Yeah, there, there were a lot of doubts. Uh, we, we never we, – we would handicap our odds of playing really once everything – once the pandemic hit seriously in the U.S. in March um, – causing a lot of seasons to cancel or suspend. That's when we started looking at our event and thinking to ourselves that uh, we're going to have to do a dramatically different version of it if we are to do it at all. And it was really on a day-by-day, week-by-week process from from mid-March to the, uh, I guess, probably mid-May when we definitively decided that we could do it with health and safety as our priority and we would have tools available to do it um, that we didn't really know what we were going to do or, or if we we could come back this year or if we'd have to push it later in the year or take the year off or whatever. Um, so we, we, we always expressed confidence in doing it because we never got to an obstacle that led us to believe that we couldn't do it. We just, we continually got obstacles that we knew it would be a challenging year to pull off, but we were thankfully over to, able to overcome all of them. And can you kind of go over kind of the um, specific 
obstacles that you encountered while putting this tournament on in terms of getting like a host site or testing or kind of any other roadblocks that you might have experienced while getting this tournament off the ground? Yeah, it, it was really all of the above. And um, in, in a large part, there's a huge part of this year that, that we had not dealt with before, obviously, which is the, uh, the, the virus and the testing portion of it and the having to assemble medical advisors. We thankfully found some unbelievable ones um, in Dr. Tara Kirksell at Johns Hopkins um, and then Tom Hospital at Ohio Health. And those two people were really able to guide us through our health and safety plan. They were able to plug us into or, or refer us to certain different testing providers and that sort of thing. So the biggest obstacles were really coming up with a health and safety plan that we felt worked and felt that, that fit our event best and then shape-shifting our event around the health and safety plan, and then determining which tools we would need to come up with, like testing, and, and then come up with them. So, like, for example, with testing, we found a great testing provider in Vault, which runs out of the Rutgers lab in New Jersey, and they do all saliva-based testing. Um, and we knew we needed turnaround times that were very quick. And so we had to, uh, had to figure out, once we determined we're going to be in Columbus, how to get those turnaround times under 24 hours, um, which involved running, you know, eight hour, an eight-hour car ride every night and then flights every afternoon to the lab. And those are just the, a, just a sample of the type of logistics that we face. Gotcha. Um, while experiencing this tournament and um, just – I always get the sense that you were probably one of the only sports that was available to watch on ESPN. Um, did the tournament experience any kind of increase in popularity in terms of ratings or um, social media traffic that you didn't experience last year? We certainly felt like there were more people watching just um, anecdotally and, and word of mouth wise. Uh, ratings were, were pretty similar to years prior, although our streaming numbers this year were way, way over previous years. So the ratings thing is always hard to, uh, to really understand as people, you know, more and more of my friends, I'm, I'm an older man uh, in his 40s, and more and more even of my friends, including myself, have, uh, have, have gotten rid of cable packages lately. So it's kind of hard to determine which metric we should be more focused on as a young sports property, whether it's streaming or, or uh, people watching them on cable. Who are Nielsen rated, but um, our so our ratings at home were, were were pretty in line with years past. Streaming was way up, and social media wise, it was uh, I think it was a home run year as far as it is uh, of, as, as far as our traffic went and uh, and, our, and interest in in what we're doing. And I wanted to ask you because just kind of studying it up about the kind of history of this tournament, I found it very interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, women can actually participate in this tournament as well. Um, is that correct? Yeah, we've had 17 women play over our seven-year history. How, how has that worked? Because that, that seems like a really cool concept um, of having both men and women participate in, in this tournament, and it's something that I don't think gets enough coverage because I think it's, in a way, uh, lack of a better term, a re revolutionary because um, we, we haven't really seen that in, in a lot of team sports. Can you kind of develop – I mean kind of go into detail, excuse me, like what was the decision in doing that? And then do you see kind of the, the future of that tournament being more of kind of a 50-50 with both uh, men and women being on the same team? My wife played college basketball um, 
who was a, uh, a Division One college basketball player, and she would tell me that she would play in leagues that where men and women played and play in tournaments. And so that way, and I, I know that, for example, in, in practices, they have a, a team of, of all um, all men scrimmaging them in college. They have that. I think a lot of a lot of Division One schools have that. And so the, the idea for me, it was pretty foreign to have women and men playing together. But to her and a, and a lot of women's players, it's not at all. Um, and, and so it was. It's an interesting concept just to, to throw it completely open. And we've had women play on teams where they're the only women on the team, and we've had entirely women female teams. And um, the unfortunate thing is that we fall usually in the middle of the WNBA season, so we're never really able to test, you know, the top tier women in the world playing against uh, players of our caliber, men of our caliber, but. It is interesting to see them and how they play in and amongst men. And that was always a, an interesting thing to want to test and, and allow for. And um, I kind of wanted to pick your brain um, also about the Elam ending. It seems like that's getting a lot of traction even within the the NBA and um, somewhat with the, the big three as well. Can you kind of um, – Explain to our listeners what that is, and also, um, have you gotten any interest um, specifically from, I guess, college basketball, um, maybe even international leagues that are interested in taking up this concept? Because I think it's fairly fascinating and something that um, before that the ending was really introduced, it never really popped in my mind to do this. But it, when it's a scene in action, it makes total sense. It does. It, it really does. We started doing it, I think, three years ago in our playing event. And it's, it was an unbelievably easy uh, switch for us to make. And, and it, was a, it was a great transition for our players to make and, and referees. And it went way smoother than we anticipated. And from day one, it just, it just became obvious that it was the future of basketball. I mean, that's the thing that you really can't control is, is how and when it's adopted by other leagues in the world. But I really feel it's inevitable at this point, that it, it provides so much of a better experience for fans uh, than, than the traditional ending. Um, and this year, we actually had there's a Canadian basketball league that adopted it at the end of their games this summer, and they, they played in the summer successfully. And then the biggest moment, really one of the biggest moments for us as a business, is when the NBA All Star Game adopted it this year in February out in Chicago, and it, it led to what a lot of people considered as one of the most successful and uh, exciting all-star games of all time of any sport. And it was pretty awesome to see that. And it was great to see, you know, it's a massively watched game. I think there are, there there are usually close to seven, 8 million people watching. And typically I was reading that all-star game ratings peak in the second quarter. And then everyone tunes out after that point. This year, there were seven, seven point two million in the second quarter, and the end of the game, they had eight million. So there were there were people who were clearly watching the end and texting their friends and tweeting about it, and people would tune in, and the, the ratings just grew and grew, and that's really a testament to the ending. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the more exciting All Star games that that we've seen in quite some time. I mean, maybe arguably even since um, a, a previous generation of basketball players uh, with how those all-star games have gone. Um, you know, it seems like that has been one thing that's inspired the NBA. I've also heard that your guys' bubble design and everything inspired the NBA. 
Um, I, I'm wondering, if, you know, is is the um, the Elam ending something that maybe you could see the NCAA taking on to make, um, you know, potentially increase ratings in in men's and women's college basketball? They traditionally adopt experimental rules in the NIT tournament every year, and mm. I'd be surprised if they didn't consider it at some point. I mean, it's just it's gone so well, and our audience is so college basketball centric because of all of our alumni teams that participate. That mm. and it's it's really interesting to see in social media how many people bring up the Elam. I think all year round, not just during TBT, but if there's a game that drags on for 15 minutes for the final minute to play out. You know, a lot of people are on, on Twitter now and, and Instagram and, and commenting on, you know, wishing that the deal ending was, was uh, in existence for a college or, or NBA. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to take a while, but uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they did adopt it. John, you, you said the tournament's been going on for seven years now. Um, I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm where you find most of your participants are, are coming from. Are they mostly um, like former college athletes? Do you have several professional athletes that participate in the tournament or is it almost exclusively like amateur kind of after college or what's kind of the breakdown of, of the players participating in the tournament? In a typical year, we'll have 700 or so, 900 players. And I think about 90% of them will be overseas professionals or Mm. or G League, or you know, we've had 35 players go on from TBT to sign deals with NBA teams. We have players who uh, who are coming out of the NBA who play. So the original concept of this tournament was to invite everybody to play, whether they're uh, an NBA player, whether they're knocking on the door in the NBA, uh, a college player, an amateur, quote-unquote amateur, as defined by the NCAA. Like We just we wanted to, to create a model where – if the Celtics want to play against a group of people from the Y to win a massive amount of money, the Celtics can play. If Duke wants to join, even though they're college basketball players, they can play too. We just wanted to the, the money at the end of this to drive uh, a little bit of disruption in the basketball space to just allow anybody in the world, even a professional overseas team, to come and enter and play in this basketball tournament over the course of the summer. Awesome. Do you have many players that were discovered and, and maybe went on to have professional careers as a result of their exposure on the tournament? Yeah, we have tons and tons every year. We, we constantly hear about when guys have a good game in CBC, their, their, phone, their phones, of course, are blowing up. And, you know, we always hear that they get offers out of, it, out of TBT. Um, a lot of players sign and get interest in the middle of CBT based on a game or two that they've had. So there, there are a lot of cases of, of deals being signed due to performance at TBT, especially this year because there's so much exposure with the event without basketball having been played in the U.S. for three and a half months going into TBT. So a lot of people are really tuned in. Awesome. So, it, I mean, it, it seems like the, you know, the time frame, as you said, is, is kind of in, in the middle of the WNBA season on a typical year. Um, and the NBA season is just wrapped up. Maybe a lot of those guys are resting. Do you think there's any hesitancy from professional men's basketball players of, um, you know, getting, getting schooled by maybe an unknown person or or a lesser known person coming on the tournament, or do you think they are, they're mostly, 
um, just kind of focused on team activities or resting after maybe, you know, a playoff run or something like that? You know, that's a really, uh, it's an interesting point. And it's something that when we were conceiving of this idea, we, we thought that players who were retiring from the NBA would come and play in TBT. Uh, you know, wh- why not have fun, assemble with your friends and play? But what we found was and we've had some prominent ones like Jason Williams and, and Mike Bibby play. Um, mm. and, and what we found pretty early on is that when a player is done with the NBA, they're done. Like they, they, are, they cannot play basketball at mm. near the level that they can could in the NBA. And there's so much financial incentive for themselves to stay in shape and, and, uh, and take care of their body that when, they're, when they call it quits the NBA, they're absolutely toast. And so when they come out in TBT, they're playing against people in many cases that you know, a lot of fans have never heard of before who went to a low Division One, maybe Division Two school, maybe there are players who are like Jimmy Fredette who everyone's heard of. But, and those players, once they're lined up against you know, an ex-NBA player or whoever they're playing against, they're really, really good. And so if you're a guy like Paul Pierce, who has a, a Hall of Fame career in the NBA, you know, what, do you, what do you stay in the game by playing in TBT and then you know, in kind of making yourself, putting yourself on that stage and potentially you know, making yourself look foolish in doing that? But in, 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 when, when I say that, though, you give enormous credit to guys like Joe Johnson, who played this year, who, who's, who's getting up and down with these players and still looking really good in that format. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you think of like the the profile of a professional NBA player, like like you mentioned, Paul Pierce. If if he wins the tournament, I mean, certainly there's going to be some notoriety that that he went that way against random competition. I, I think there is accolades to be gained in that. Uh, but but yeah, I, I do wonder also, um, you know, kind of a risk reward thing where if he's out in an early round by someone relatively unknown at the time, that's going to be much more of a victory. And and maybe that person coming in and facing him has um, much greater incentive or, you know, they're really, really hyped up because this is their, their NBA finals. Um, Yeah. So so it is interesting. There's probably maybe more, more to lose for that ex NBA player and maybe more to gain for the the player that they don't, you know, it's up against that player. But um, it is interesting. I, I, I agree with you. I'm John. I've got one more question for you. Then we'll let you go. Um, just again, studying up on this tournament, um, I noticed that pretty much anybody can get involved in terms of being a general manager um, or kind of in the development process of you know creating a team. Have you seen in terms of the formation of these teams, like kind of normal people um, develop the kind of nucleus? of their squads that eventually end up winning your tournament or is it more um, kind of basketball people more um, kind of, I don't know, people that are involved, have some kind of experience in the basketball world where it's like a former coach or a former GM, or do you see more just kind of the everyday person thinking that, Hey, I can put together a team and win this thing. We see, we see all of the above. Sometimes it's somebody who's got a lot of money, you know, who, who wants to have fun and basically, it's the equivalent of owning a horse in the Kentucky Derby, but for basketball. So somebody with, with money can get to a, a trainer who has connections to basketball players. That person can float a team and put it together and, uh, and fund it and travel players there and pay for training and that sort of thing. And then there are just kind of basketball super fans who play that role. You have almost like a fantasy sport. Uh, like Everline Drive is an example of a team that's, that's played in TBT every year since we uh, since we started in 2014. Just a bunch of basketball fans, 
And after putting it on year one where they were playing amongst themselves and, you know, not, they were getting killed on the court, they slowly built up their roster and they reach out to agents incessantly and reach out to players on social media. And, and they've, they've assembled like a, a team that, that each year now competes for a championship. So there's definitely that opportunity for anyone to basically, you know, without a billion dollars in your bank account to, to live like an NBA owner and, and, uh, and, and, and participate in a major basketball event and build their own team. That's one of the big appeals. Well, John, uh, we thank you very much for joining us. Um, did you go ahead and plug any social media, anything that we should look out for for the TBT in 2021, or um, could anything else you're working on? Yeah, we might, you know, who knows what the next thing is for us. But with, uh, you know, I don't know what, what form our tournament's going to be, but you can always find us at thetournament.com or at the tournament on Twitter. Awesome, John. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you, John. Now we have the pleasure in welcoming our next guest, Jen Hatfield. She is a writer for Her Hoop Stats, um, also the next Hoops and 538. Thanks, Jen, for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, let's, uh, Jen, let's hop into it right now, and let's uh, discuss your impressions overall, um, how the WNBA has handled the bubble environment. We're kind of uh, deep into the season. Um, the players are getting comfortable uh, playing in this kind of an unorthodox environment. How do you think the, the league has handled the bubble situation so far? I would say it's been so far so good. You know, there were some, you know, bumps in the road as they moved in. Some players posted their dissatisfaction on social media, but that stuff got resolved pretty quickly. And so far, there have been no positive tests since the initial quarantine period. So that's, you know, first and foremost, that's that's the first metric, I guess, we should use to judge success. But, you know, the games seem to be going well. We're getting a high-quality basketball. Certainly, it's tough on the players being, you know, away from their families and the physical demands of the season with a condensed schedule. But so far, it seems to be going really well. And um, in terms of TV ratings, too, that's up. So I have no complaints. How do you think the, the players have adjusted to the environment? Uh, we've seen um, their counterparts um, in the NBA from LeBron James saying he's taken a long time for him to get used to not having fans to the stands. And then we have Damian Lillard and some other players who are just um, truly dominating um, in the league. I think even today I saw Brittany Griner and the WNBA have an awesome game. Um, is there any kind of – it just depends on the player in terms of how they're acclimating to the environment, or do you think there's some consistency in terms of which players have adjusted the best? That's a good question. I think it definitely depends on the player to some extent, but the players that I've talked to uh, mostly have said, you know, they're used to it. Um, it's more just like for them, it's less the having fans in the stands and more getting used to playing every other day as, as these women are doing for the next, you know, month until the playoffs. Um, you know, but I think, I think they've adjusted pretty well. Some, uh, some of them have spoken out, you know, Natalie Achanwa and Leisha Clarendon, who play for Indiana and New York, respectively. They have both spoken out about how this can be tough on their mental health right now. Um, and I'm sure other players share those concerns. Um, but by and large, I think, I think the women are happy to be there, even if it's not always the easiest thing for them to do, either physically or mentally, um, and excited to be playing. 
Jen, you mentioned earlier that the the ratings have increased maybe compared to past years. Do you have a sense as to, I mean, obviously there are a lot of confounding factors this year with 2020 being what it is. Do you have a sense, I saw, I think two out of the three games today were on national TV, um, or maybe that was yesterday. I apologize if I'm wrong. Um, do you have a sense as to maybe some of the main reasons that ratings are up this year? It could be a lot of things. Um, you're right. The two games today were, were on ABC and ESPN has been doing a lot of double headers too. So heads off to the networks. Um, you know, ESPN expanded its its slate of games after it saw the success of opening weekend. So so that was really great for the league. I mean, I, I think it's probably a bunch of factors. You know, there's there's people, you know, maybe having more free time on their hands to watch the WNBA. There's the fact that it's you know, on all the time. And, and maybe that density of games helps people um, be aware of it or, or think to, to to tune in. Perhaps the, the success of the league's collective bargaining agreement, they just negotiated new terms back in January, and, and that has been hailed as a success for women's sports. You know, there's, there's all sorts of um, possible reasons, um, including, you know, there's also the WNBA players have been not only recently, but for the past several years, have been very involved in social justice. So that too may have may have attracted fans. But but whatever the reason, I think the players are really um, aware of, appreciative of, and determined to make the most of of the new eyes that they're drawing. Um, I wanted to ask, since you touched on the social justice point, um, and we've I've asked some of the um, other guests we've had on the show in past weeks. Why do you think the, the WNBA have been the leaders in this movement? Because um, I think it's it's unfortunate that usually the NBA gets credit for being on the um, the front lines of the social justice movement, or take or being like the first league to really um, be active uh, within social justice. But really, the WNBA was really the first ones that have done this. Um, have been, I think, more active as just a collective league um, overall. Where do you think the WNBA um, kind of gets that from? Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. And, and you know, appreciate you giving credit where credit's due to the WNBA. Um, I think part of it just comes down to representation. Um, the figure I've heard thrown around is that 80% of the women in the WNBA are black women. And so, you know, they often feel that double lack of representation, both for their gender and their race and also many of the many of the women in the league black white or or some other race that they identify with um identify as gay or lesbian um and so that brings to it another level of maybe not quite feeling represented or accepted and and wanting to change the status quo to to be more inclusive and how do you um What's your perception of how the league has been presented on the networks in terms of the social justice um, perspective? Just because with the NBA, we've seen them, you know, for that first week, show the national anthem, um, really had those discussions. And now we're kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty of the playoffs. Um, how do you think the, the WNBA, um, from, I guess, a network perspective, has handled the uh, social justice um, protests from the players as we get deeper into the season? I think the leagues have done, uh, the networks have done a good job of um, making sure that social ju- justice is part of the conversation. Part of that is, you know, you see the Black Lives Matter 
um, logo on the court. You know, you you see coaches wearing shirts throughout the games, not just for opening weekend, but they'll wear shirts that say Black Lives Matter or Say Her Name or Black Trans Lives Matter. Um, so you're seeing it, and then players are, are continually referencing that in their interviews. If you, if you turn on your TV and you listen to a sideline interview pre-game uh, pre or post-game or, or even in-game, a lot of the times players will reference that they are playing this season for a bigger purpose than winning a championship. Um, and what many of them mean by that is that they are, you know, fighting for Breonna Taylor and all of the other victims of police violence, um, and they feel really strongly about that. So I think it's I think the networks have done a good job of, you know, having your play-by-play -play and your analysts talking about it, but also, you know, pointing it out when the players or the coaches are are trying to amplify it as well. Jen, I wanted to ask you, and, and we had asked a, a guest previously about this, but I have, I feel like since um, the inception of the WNBA, I mean, it, it felt like really very separate from the NBA, whereas nowadays, and maybe as a result of social media, I don't know, I'll, I'll ask your opinion on this, but um, it does seem like there is uh, a closer relationship between NBA players and WNBA players as um, maybe it's seeing each other as equals, um, you know, what have you. I, I do feel like there's more camaraderie between uh, at least the players of both of those leagues is that something that you would agree with? And what do you think has maybe led to that change, if so? I can't speak to the very beginning of the, of the league, but I think that camaraderie is definitely there now. It's, it's very obvious. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C., and last year throughout the Washington Mystics run to the title, um, John Wall and Bradley Beal from the Wizards were in attendance. Um, you know, the, the Mystics and the Wizards – organized a joint march this year on Juneteenth to honor victims of police violence. Um, and, you know, you see the public comments as well that are on social media. And, and it's clear that, that NBA players very much see WNBA players as their equals. And in, in some cases, we'll, we'll say, you know, WNBA players are, are better than they are at, at certain things, perhaps fundamentals. That's a common one that you hear. Um, so I, I think that that's been a really great thing for the league. I think that players on both sides really appreciate each other and, and have worked together, you know, to learn from each other, improve their games, and also also to fight for social justice. Jen, I also wanted to ask you um, to that point with seeing the, the gap and the respect grow, um, this kind of that, that gap narrow and the respect grow between the NBA and WNBA players. Um, what do you think from a television perspective? I noticed in, in years past, um, I've complained to Matt about this, um, just in terms of the presentation <laughs> on ESPN being, I, in my opinion, flat out terrible for, for the WNBA players. Um, and I noticed in this year, they've done more, um, I would say, highlight packages and profile pieces on the player during, during player on the players during halftime. Um, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on the presentation aspect, because um, I just believe in years past, that the network that the league has been on hasn't really treated the WNBA as equals compared to um, their counterparts. Um, have you seen a difference this year? So I think that the the actual package during WNBA games is great. You know, the, the broadcasters who are doing it are great. Holly Rowe, the sideline reporter in the bubble is, is always great. You know, they've really, they've really worked hard to bring a good product 
um, to viewers however they can. I, I would say that I would like to see from, you know, I'll use ESPN as an example mostly because it's what I'm most familiar with, not to call them out exclusively here, but you know, if you go to Sports Center and, and I don't have the exact numbers, but if you watch an hour of Sports Center, how much are women covered? Not even just the WNBA, but how much are women covered? Almost almost zero. Um, you know, I, I would love to see more women on the top ten plays because there are top ten plays every day from women, but it's rare that you that you see that. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the games have been great and it's fabulous that ESPN wants to continue showing women on their network. Um, but I would like to see them integrated more fully into all of their coverage, including their talk shows and their, you know, morning news. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Jen. I, I feel like watching a, a broadcast like sports center or any other other shows, they, go out of their way not to promote the league only when there's an issue that it's that's at, that's at hand. Um, whether it's usually something negative has something to do with the league or um, nothing positive, nothing in terms of actually promoting a huge matchup between two teams that's, you know, leading to them competing for the title. It's usually some kind of a issue that's newsworthy. And I agree with you. I wish the league would just focus upon as individual players, um, as for their achievements, not because there's usually some kind of problem or they're making headlines in another way. Yeah, that's a great point about what the type of coverage tends to be as well. I mean, even if you if you go to, I'll stick with my ESPN example again, not to not to call them out exclusively because there are certainly all sorts of other places that do it too. But it strikes me how how much more difficult it is to find out basic news um, like a like a WNBA score. It is it's going to take you longer to find on the ESPN homepage than the NBA score is. Uh, if you scroll on the ESPN homepage on any given day, you're going to scroll through a lot of men's content before you hit women's content as a general rule. There have been a few exceptions, um, but in general, it's, it, you, have to, you have to work to find your women's coverage. Hmm. Jen, I'll, I'll ask you, um, you know, one more kind of very, very open-ended question. Um, say, say you don't have the restriction of revenue or anything like that, and you are WNBA commissioner, let's say. Um, and, and I ask this as someone just who is a human being who's interested in the sport of basketball. I love the sport of basketball. I mean, I would like to see women have the same success that, that men are having um, in the W or in the, in the NBA um, what is one change that that you think would help bring more of an audience to the WNBA? I mean, would it be like, for example, them having the opportunity to have a longer season so that we could get uh, to know the players better and, and have like longer season narratives build out and rivalries develop? Would it be uh, just simply exposure, um, more opportunity to be seen? Uh, what would be like kind of just one thing that you would change um, or or like to see to to be able to grow the WNBA? I would love to get to a point in, you know, the, the recent CBA agreement gets us partway there, but I would love to get us to a point where the women don't have to go play overseas in the winter. That's partly mm -hmm. so that they get the rest and time to improve their game, you know, without, you know, without the wear and tear of playing year round, but it's also so that they can be in the U S and doing 
marketing and promotion and community service and whatever else they would love to do in their off season, but they can't um, when they're in another country and can't engage with, with the U.S. market as well. Um, so that would just be one thing. I think lengthening the season would be great, but you would first need to be able to ensure that they get the rest that they need. Um, because what we don't want to do is we don't want to lengthen the season and then they still have to go overseas and, you know, it, it just puts, puts even more wear and tear. Um, one other thing that people talk about is, is shifting the season to the winter. I selfishly, you know, I love college basketball men's and women's, so I am selfishly um, hoping that they, that they do not do that. But mm. some people argue that that could, could maybe be a way to get uh, the women more exposure because, you know, the winter time is more of a quote unquote natural time to watch basketball than the summer is when you're out traveling and, and doing all sorts of other things. Um, so that's, that's definitely an option that people throw out, but I would probably just start with the um, paying them more and, and incentivizing them not to have to go overseas. Um, one last question for you, Jen. Um, watching the WNBA players in the bubble, do you see any positives from either a presentation standpoint or just the way the players have been um, treated in the bubble that you think could be carried to future WNBA seasons? That's a great question. I, I think that the sense around the WNBA for, for people who cover it and, and probably even fans as well, um, and, and certainly among the players is that, is that the league is, is building. Like there is, there is momentum there. Um, you know, it, it, part of it goes back to the CBA. Part of it goes to how supportive the WNBA has been of players' social justice efforts. Um, this is a sea change from just four years ago. The WNBA fined players for wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, and now they're organizing an opening weekend dedicated to Black Lives Matter, and players are dedicating the season to Breonna Taylor and others, and it's just like it's hard to overstate the depth of that turnaround. So I think that's been really positive. Um, I think that, I think that overall, you know, the, the league has shown in the past calendar year, both with the CBA and with the bubble that they're listening to players and they're listening to their concerns. Um, so one, one just kind of uh, humorous example is that, the players asked for um, hairdressers, which the NBA bubble has, but the WNBA bubble did not have <laughs> until this morning when was, when the, that, today was the first day that players and coaches could get a haircut. So Connecticut head coach, Kurt Miller got a haircut at 7 AM this morning. Yep. Um, <laughs> I saw that too. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, that, that feels like a lot to them. They're really excited about it. And the league, you know, stepped up and, and said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to give this to you. And that's, you know, it's it's a small thing, but it's not a small thing for the future mm -hmm. of the league to to have the league and the players feel like they are in partnership and being heard rather than always having to fight for every little bit of progress. Well, Jen, thank you very much for joining us. Um, go ahead and plug uh, any stories you're working on, your social media handles, anything that our, our listeners should uh, be on the lookout. Awesome. Well, right now I am covering the Washington Mystics season and, and writing on a range of other things as well. But you can find me on Twitter at Jen Hatfield one. That's Jen with two N's. Um, and I write for, as you said at the beginning, I write for the next hoops and her hoop stats and a little bit for 538 as well. But the easiest way to follow me is on Twitter. 
Awesome. Very, thank you very much for joining us, Jen. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you.